Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, I can't imagine ever forgetting some of the things I saw in court that day, I have to say. What matters most? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. I'm thrilled to welcome to Short Black a fellow 10 journalist, uh, Catherine Furkin, who's also working for CBS remotely in Australia at the moment and the author of her first book, Sticks and Stones. Welcome, Catherine, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Sandra. It's a little bit of an exciting time, I have to say, but also a bit weird being in the middle of a pandemic and launching a book. Yeah, exactly. And what a terrific read. But to publish your first book, what is that like? Oh, it's honestly, it really is a pinch yourself moment. I mean, I've been very lucky with my career. I've worked across all mediums, print, TV, online, radio. I've had some extraordinary experiences as part of my job as a journalist. But to actually have that opportunity to put my own words on the page in a way that I want and to have it published with someone like Penguin Random House and to have it, you know, come out into the world and see it on the bookshelves and so far have had such great feedback It's just been humbling and also, honestly, a little bit overwhelming. It's quite an amazing time. Well, they're an esteemed publisher and they wouldn't be signing you up if they didn't think it was good. Now, for our listeners who don't know anything about Sticks and Stones, tell us the storyline. Yeah, well, it is, it's a crime thriller and it's set in Melbourne. A lot of people are telling me it's, it's a real police procedural, which is funny because I really didn't see it in that vein when I started writing it. Basically, it follows my lead detective, Emmett Corbin, who is head of the Missing Persons Unit. And when we first meet him, he's really feeling a little bit almost unimpressed with the role. He's finding that his unit is really under-resourced and understaffed, and he's just left swamped with these really almost banal cases, which he thinks local stations should be handling themselves. But then he comes across this case of a missing mum, and that's when everything really changes for Emmett. He quickly learns that this missing mum left her two children at a holiday program and she never returned to pick them up. So it does look highly suspicious right from the outset. And we really do see Emmett go from one extreme to the other, from being a little bit bored and a bit sort of unhappy in his role to suddenly being absolutely under pressure and effectively chasing this really dangerous predator through the streets of Melbourne. What I love about the way you've written it is how you take us down a path and then surprise us with another angle and you geniusly weave it all together to the point where, wow, you're trying to work out who the murderer is the whole way through. So often with crime at the moment, and I think this is true globally, they're set in more rural and remote settings. What made you decide to set this in Melbourne? Because for me, I can visualise, you know, the Housing Commission units just near Flemington Racecourse and Mooney Ponds and downtown Melbourne, the back lanes, the alleyways. And I think that really adds to the appeal. 
Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I must admit I was a little bit hesitant when I finally did get my publishing deal. I was actually considering rewriting it and putting it into a rural setting because as you say, there are so many books at the moment that seem to be doing that and they seem to be very, very successful. And I was a bit worried that maybe sort of a more gritty inner city book wouldn't really resonate with readers. But now that I've gone ahead and and stuck with my hopes of having it set in Melbourne, I'm really glad I did that because I, I do think it brings almost another character to the book and it does make it a little bit different, particularly in the current sort of literary setting. Surely your experience as a crime reporter, I can assume, has really helped you craft that detail. You're still in contact with many in the Melbourne CBD and the police force to help you as you put this together? Yeah, I was really, really lucky. In fact, as I wrote this book, you know, one of the things that surprised me, and perhaps I was a little bit almost arrogant when I started out, but I thought because I have covered so many crimes and I've done so much court reporting and I know Melbourne like the back of my hand, I felt like this was going to be almost quite an easy thing for me to do. And it was quite uh, almost humbling as I got started to realise that I actually did need a fair bit of help still from police in actually just working out their methodology and how they would go about approaching different things. I was very lucky that I had two particularly close contacts, which I'd met through my work as a journalist, who were just so generous with their time. One of them is a former detective who was involved in really pretty much all of Victoria's biggest cases in the past decade. You could pretty much name any of those big crimes and he was involved. And to have someone like that sort of have my back and actually be able to give me feedback constantly through the writing of the book, it was so helpful. And I think although it did take a fair bit of extra time, I do think going to that level of detail has has really been almost rewarding. It's really, I don't know, I feel like when I read the book, I am very proud that it, it is a really realistic adaptation of how these crimes would be dealt with. You must be pretty thrilled at some of the responses so far. You've been described as Australian crime fiction has just found an exciting new voice. It's chock full of thrills rather than chills and it's an impressive debut that's as disturbing as it is twisty. What I really enjoyed is how you maintain the tension all the way through. That's a certain trick isn't it? Have you wanted to be a writer for a long time? When did this all start for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've wanted to write pretty much from as young as I can remember. It was the one thing I desperately wanted to do since I was a little kid. But that idea of tension that you mentioned, I do think I'm very lucky that I've worked as a reporter for so many years because I think it's something we naturally have to do day to day. You know, you have to find the angle in the story and particularly in court cases where you can sit through hours of information and all of them are sort of almost worthy of telling people about, you do have to really cut to the important part or the interesting part very, very quickly. And so for me, that idea of really almost having cliffhangers at the end of every chapter and having people hang on to every word, that part felt quite natural. But the actual process of writing and just getting my bum in the seat and putting the hours in every day, that was really for me where the hard work came in. And when you say hard work, I mean, you did this around your working life. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm a real morning person and I'm absolutely useless in the evening. So the only way I could make this work was by getting up really early and trying to squeeze whatever amount of writing I could before work. But as you would know, being a journalist is not a nine to five job and it's not a Monday to Friday job. So I was never able to really have a very routine schedule and I had to learn, which took a lot of discipline to really grab bits of time when I could. Sometimes that meant getting up at 4am and trying to squeeze an hour in before a 6am shift. 
Sometimes you see if I was starting a bit later, that might be able to do sort of 4 to 6 a.m. But really, I just took whatever time I could. And I also learned one, one of the skills I've developed through this, which hopefully will come in, into use further along, is that ability to really just zone in and focus on what I'm doing very quickly because it's the only way. My book's about 100,000 words long. It's the only way I could really get the words on the page. You wanted to show the links between upbringing and behaviour, between self-esteem and self-harm. Has that come about because of your work as a crime and court reporter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that it still staggers me today when I'm sitting in the courtroom is how often offenders really do have a very traumatised or at least unstable background. And it's never ever to condone their behaviour. I never feel sympathy for these people because their actions are absolutely, you know, terrible. But I do find it interesting that so often we don't have that conversation about where these people come from and how they were moulded to be a killer or just to be an offender if we're talking about lesser crimes. And I, I really am fascinated how important those childhood years are particularly and how often that cycle of neglect can play through generations and that you know, decision of one person can really impact so many more people going forward because you are shaping a little person in those fundamental years. And it's, it's really quite tragic to me how often these people clearly don't get the help that they need early on to get them on a, a slightly better path. And I gather it wasn't a coincidence, given the crime spree and domestic violence and the hideous violence against women in Melbourne over the last couple of years. They've made headlines across the country, if not around the world. And, and your story centres on the death of women in Melbourne, targeted deaths. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it made sense for me that my victims were going to be women. And I say unfortunate for all those reasons that you just mentioned, that it is realistic and it is believable because unfortunately, Melbourne currently does have an epidemic of violence against women. And in fact, during the pandemic, it's something that we're seeing only exacerbated even more. So, you know, I didn't want to sort of do a deep dive into the issue of domestic violence. And it's certainly the book is certainly not that. But it is very much a reflection of the current trend of crimes. And unfortunately, I do think it's often women who are bearing the brunt of it at the moment. Well, that's a really strong undercurrent and an important thread, but it's still a good story. I'm wondering how much of it was fiction and how much is true based on so many of the criminal trials you've covered. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You know, I even ask myself that now because, of course, things do meld over time and blend into my head. And one of the things that really I found a bit almost shocking when I wrote the first draft of this book, it was really quite graphic and it was quite violent. And it, it isn't like that now, the published version. But it made me realize how deeply affected I have been by some of the cases I've covered and how my sensibilities, I guess, have changed over time because I have been exposed to some very gory details in court, you know, all the evidence photos we see and all the forensic analysis and things. There is no question for me now that I have been affected by the work I've done. So certainly I have drawn on that and played with it. I think more than anything, though, it's the characters that you meet along the way as a reporter that really have made their way into the book. And by that, I mean, you know, one of the amazing things about being a reporter is that you are on the road every day and every day is different. And so you do tend to meet people from all walks of life that perhaps normally you wouldn't. And I think that was perhaps why for me, I have told the story through multiple perspectives and I have felt quite comfortable jumping between my different characters because I really felt like I have actually met all these people along the way. 
there are threads of truth through all of them with all the trials you've covered. There's, you know, snippets of identities and personalities woven through all your characters. Yeah, absolutely. Someone asked me the other day how much of myself was in there. And I said, well, I couldn't point to any one character and say that I am that character, but certainly all the characters in my book pretty much are flawed. And I generally feel like I've made most of those mistakes somewhere in my life along the way. So there's a little bit of me and then there's probably a lot of my professional career in there. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One thing I find often with our court reporters and crime reporters is so much of the true story actually is never told, is it? You are spot on with that, Sandra. It doesn't matter what media we're talking about. Obviously, at the moment, you know, you and I both work for Network 10, and so we're talking about broadcast journalism. But even writing for a newspaper where you get perhaps a slightly longer length of time, you can never delve into all the issues and cover every angle. And it, it really is fascinating some of, sometimes some of the detail and particularly for me that backstory that often gets left out because we just don't have time and it's often not the heart of the story in that moment. I do find it fascinating to look back and think, gee, how did this person become a killer or how did they end up in this spot? And the same for victims. I often feel like we portray them as victims, but we don't often give you a lot more about who they were before. How did they end up in that point? How did their paths cross with this person? All those kind of things I find really interesting and they are things you can more fully explore, obviously, in a novel. On that point, you have covered some pretty horrific criminal trials, including the death and funeral of underworld figure Carl Williams. One thing that always concerns me working in a newsroom is when the court reporters come back, particularly from child molestation cases, the material, the evidence they've heard in court stays with them for days, if not years. Are there any trials that you'll never really get over, can never really forget? As far as just more of a surreal moment, less of a gory moment, for me, it was covering the funeral of underworld figure Carl Williams. I was quite a junior reporter back then, and it was one of the biggest cases I'd done, certainly at the time. And for me, sitting in this really suburban church, it was, I still remember, I can vividly remember the scene. It was in Essendon, this small little church. And on on one side, you had all these underworld figures and really notorious, uh, almost scary people in this small room. And then on the other side, you had people who knew this man as as almost just a father or as a neighbor or as the guy that helped walk their dog. And there was just such a juxtaposition for me between this sort of evil empire figure and this almost very, very average suburban man. And so that's something that I, I don't think I will ever forget. And That's another theme that does run through sticks and stones, this idea of the facades we can put on and these people can have almost normal lives and yet be planning these really horrific things in the background. 
Another trial that will stay with me, I think, forever is one that I still believe is one of Melbourne's most brutal, horrific murders. And I still don't believe it got the attention it deserved at the time. And that was the 2014 murder of Renee Lau. Now, Renee was a pastry chef who'd come over from Hong Kong and she was living in Melbourne, effectively living the life of her dreams. She was volunteering at an aged care home and singing at a local choir and she just met this great guy. And she was literally just walking to work one morning when a man grabbed her off the street and brutally raped and murdered her. And for me, what stood out about this particular case was that it was so brutal. It was completely random. There was no apparent motive. And during the actual attack, it lasted over 80 minutes. And Renee was conscious for most of this time. And the evidence that was given in court was still some of the most horrific evidence I have seen. I remember the forensic pathologist got up and said that her head injuries looked like someone who'd been in a severe car accident. And I just found that case so harrowing for so many reasons, but particularly just there was absolutely nothing to indicate that this man was about to do what he did. He had almost no history of prior offending. It was just so random. And that really was one of those moments we think, gee, that could have been anyone This poor woman just happened to be in the wrong spot at the wrong time. And there's really no making sense of a crime like that. That is one that will probably, I mean, I can't imagine ever forgetting some of the things I saw in court that day, I have to say. Do you think through the years you've developed your own personal instinct, some sort of personality profile that is a hallmark of a killer? Gee, that's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the things that is still surprising when you sit in court is how often killers can appear to be quite normal. I mean, if you're talking like the Adrian Baileys of the world and things, even though he did have some prior offences, as far as his physical appearance and his sort of day-to-day activities, he seemed like a very average, normal sort of guy that you probably wouldn't look at twice if he passed you on the street. Adrian Bailey, I remember him, convicted of that horrific murder of Jill Maher back in 2012. Yeah, but, you know, this sounds a bit weird, but for me there's almost always something in their eyes. And I must say I do have a bit of an instinct, as you say, when I meet people or just as soon as I get a feeling I cross the street, I am a little bit intuitive and I am a little bit like, no, this doesn't feel quite right. And I don't know if that's something I've developed through my job, but I certainly trust my gut whenever that little niggle comes up because I I guess I have sat through too many cases where people perhaps weren't able to, to make that quick decision. I wonder if that's become a regular point of discussion between you and your husband when you meet new people and you sort of remind him about your intuition. No, there's something not right about them. (laughs) Absolutely. We often have conversations where we're like, no, even just on a lesser scale, not necessarily that someone's a killer, but just no, that that doesn't feel quite right. And we're not going to go ahead with that. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, you, you do meet so many people in this job and I think you do sort of certainly little alarm bells go off with particular sorts of people. It's funny, journalists become journalists for all sorts of reasons, but often deep down there's a story in every journalist. There's a book they claim in every journalist. You must be absolutely beside yourself with how this has taken off. I mean, it's only recently hit the shelves. I can see a podcast in this already. Oh, that would be fabulous. Yeah, I've had a really good amount of feedback from different people so far saying that they would love to see it either as a TV series or as a podcast. 
I would love to see all that work I put into my book continue on into another medium. That would be just a bit of a dream. Have you found yourself going to bookshops, finding, moving them on the, you know, the bestseller, the new release shelf, just to sort of say, put it front and centre, this is me, this is mine? (laughs) You know, I still get a shock every time I walk into a bookstore and see my book sitting there. There's still that kind of, I mean, it has been out of almost a month now and I still get that sense of like, wow, that's my book and it's there. (laughs) And I even get a shock when, when people buy it, which sounds ridiculous, but when you do write a book, yeah, when you write a book, you don't really, I certainly didn't think about that next step. I didn't think about what are people going to think of this or are people going to buy it or any of that kind of stuff. I just knew I really wanted to get this on the page and I wanted to get it published. And so it is a really surreal experience. And as you say, people always say that journalists have a book in them, but to actually get it out and to see it out in the world, it really is something else. And to have Penguin Random House behind me, it I mean, I look back where I was, you know, 12 months ago and I I sort of can't believe it, to be honest. How long was the dream? How long when you had that first idea and then before it became a reality? What was that time frame? This particular book, I had been chipping away at it for about five years, but really it was only in the past sort of 18 months that I was, you know, really truly hours a day focused on it. Before that, it was sort of just whenever I could. And then I realized, no, I'm going to have to take this seriously if I'm actually ever going to get it completed in the way that I want. Was it also because all of a sudden that penny dropped and you knew you had the formula? You could deliver the chapters and weave it together in such a way that the suspense was there, it was going to be a thriller, and you could see how you could piece it together to the finale? Yeah, that's again, that's a really interesting thought. And I don't know if I ever at any point thought, wow, I can do this. But certainly for me, what really struck me was that this was the first time, I mean, like a lot of people, I'm probably my harshest critic. And this was the first time where I would go back and reread something I'd done and almost forget that it was my own work. I'd get so lost in it. And that was a really good sign for me that it was more than just, okay, I've bashed out these words because I have to quickly and the deadline's coming like I often do in stories on a day-to-day basis. This was something more. And yeah, I guess I I did grow in confidence over the years once I'd played around with it enough to go, no, I actually think I can do this. For those that don't have a novel in them but wonder maybe, walk me through the process. Do you map out the whole storyline? How does it work for you? No, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people are surprised when I say this, but I'm not a real plotter. And it surprises people particularly because, as you mentioned, the nature of my story does have multiple storylines going on. And it is almost a bit like a jigsaw puzzle that has to come together. So people presume that I would have a really complicated plan, but I very much write on gut and I'm a big rewriter. So I tend to just rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until I get everything fitting the way that I want it to fit. I had a really strong idea, though, of my killer, who they were going to be and what their motivation was, because that was particularly important to me. And I had a really strong idea of what their backstory was going to be. And of course, the main crimes in the book. But other than that, I thought, I'm just going to let my characters sort of tell me their story as we go. And I let them kind of weave the way. And it did take a lot of rewriting. I did seven full rewrites of the book before I got it to the publisher. But for me, almost doing it that way was the way I sort of planned my way through it was simply by rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. For any writer, of course, the pinnacle is 
to have the book published and then it has to be the book launch. But you were denied because of COVID. What happened? It was a bit disappointing to not have that sort of book launch that you expect because it does feel like a rite of passage that, you know, I'd missed out on. And after so many years, you do sort of picture it and plan in your head how it's going to be. And certainly I never expected that mine would just be on Zoom in my living room in my PJs. But, you know, <laughs> things things happen weirdly. But um, I still had my champagne and I had a, I put a blazer on over my PJs on the top and I did my Zoom launch and it was... <laughs> You know, it was still, it was actually wonderful. I was surprised by how special it could still feel, even though it was all virtual. But, you know, I do hope for book two that, you know, I can finally get certain people in the room with me and thank them for their support. Some of those detectives, as I mentioned, and things like that, that would be wonderful to get everyone together and have a real celebration. Well, look, you're currently based in New York with CBS, but you're living back in Australia, in Melbourne at the moment. Are your dreams to continue on being a journalist or is being a writer and author taken hold? Oh, I definitely want to keep writing, but I also love being a reporter. So I, I really do think they go hand in hand. The only thing that doesn't mesh that well is just the amount of time that each one takes. I really hope that I can continue to do both, that I can keep, you know, my plan is to go back to New York and continue being a reporter and seeing where my career takes me next as far as that goes. And then I hope that I will be able to keep writing and keep producing crime novels, hopefully till I'm old and grey. We'll see. To any young reporters starting out that have the dream of a novel one day being published, what would be your advice to them? Oh, I think if you're serious about getting a novel published, you can't start too early because the amount of time that it's going to take is going to be so much longer than what you expect when you start out. It is just such a big project and I certainly underestimated that. I had all sorts of ridiculous timelines in my head when I started and I blew all those deadlines out by years. So if you have ideas, start jotting them down now and start thinking about ways that you might want to tell your story, whatever that would be. And at some point you need to make a decision that you're going to be serious about it and start dedicating those hours and sacrificing other things so that you can actually get it done. Well, the back cover of your book, Catherine, says Firkin takes readers into the mind of a killer like no one else. It is a ripping read. I can't congratulate you enough. Catherine Firkin, thanks so much for your time and we'll watch on with interest as your star continues to rise. Thank you so much, Sandra. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm Leah Harris. In the Where's William Tyrrell podcast, I tell the story of the little boy who disappeared from his foster grandmother's home more than five years ago as the journalist who's been on the journey since day one. It's a story that is as baffling as it is heartbreaking, and I'm glad we could give William's foster parents the chance to tell their side of the story in their first interview in almost four years. The most recent episodes have focused on the coronial inquest into the disappearance of William Tyrrell along with the case against former lead detective on the investigation, Gary Jubelin. And I spoke with Mr Jubelin not long after he was convicted of illegally recording a person of interest in the case. You can listen to Where's William Tyrrell and our other 10 Speaks podcasts on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 